I'm not here to poke holes in suspended disbelief. Anyway, they see some weird shit. They decide to make a baby. Thou Merkin merchant. Who gives a fuck? Oh my god, we're just gonna start calling you Damien Yeltsin's billboards. Well, you know, uh, I really like it here. Uh, it's kind of nice, and uh, it's not as cold as back home, and the soil is a lot better. So yeah, sure, I think we're gonna settle. If I'm a peasant boy who grabs a sword out of a stone, yeah, I'm able to open people up. You will, yeah. Anytime I hit them with it, right? Yeah. So my cleave landing will make me a cavalier. Good day, sir. If Siskel thought it was empty-headed plebeian trash, he was probably <laughs> really good at groove on it. <laughs> because cannibalism and murder. Pull back just a little bit and build walls to keep out the redheads. Authorial intent doesn't exist. Some people stand up to wipe their butts. Some people stay seated to wipe their butts. Like it just. This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history and English teacher at the middle school level here in Northern California. And uh, my family is now coming out from under the shadow of Nurgle, God of Plague. Uh, <laughs> not COVID, not COVID. But um, last week, around about Tuesday, my, my son... Uh, mentioned in, in a conversation with, with my mother via FaceTime uh, that his ear was hurting. And I had been talking with my mother about an issue I was having with my ears. Uh, and so his mother and I just kind of assumed, you know, as he's trying to be part of the conversation. Didn't really think anything of it because he's four and he wasn't acting like he was really in any pain. So we just kind of brushed that off. Two days after that, we got a call from daycare that he woke up from his nap crying because his ear hurt. So, okay, he's got an ear infection. And then the following day, my wife took the day off from work to take him to the doctor's office. And uh, he was running a fever. Doctors determined he had not only the ear infection, but the flu. And while they were in the doctor's office, as the doctor is saying, yeah, it looks like it's probably influenza, my wife then broke out in full body sweats and nearly fainted. Wow. Like cold sweats all over her body, had to, had to sit down. They immediately, you know, got water and, and saw to her and they were like, oh yeah, and you probably have it too. Um, test results came back. It was influenza A. And um, I then spent the next two days madly trying to get Kaiser to give me Tamiflu because mm. I cannot be out of school right now. Right. You know, it's, it's, you know, we try to keep this timeless, but it's the beginning of the school year and I, I can't, I can't miss any time right now. So right. like I was completely freaking out. Um, and so fortunately everybody has passed, but it was a rough couple of days uh, not you... passed. Sorry, everybody. The, the the disease has passed over us. Okay, and there is you go. gone now. Everybody, <laughs> so... everybody has has come out the other side. Okay, is a better way for me to phrase that. I'm sorry. Yeah, I realize <laughs> it's been a long day. I'm sorry, uh, but you know everybody's okay now. But it was it it made for it made for a very long weekend. I bet. Um, I remember yeah. That. So that's that's what I've got going on. Uh, yeah. How about you? 
Well, I uh, went and visited a friend of mine at a pub called the Stark Raven Pub. Um, okay. You, yeah. You have my attention. Yes. Yes. So uh, this is actually friend of the show, Tim Watts. Okay. Uh, instead of getting to travel, he built himself a backyard pub. Fuck yes. <laughs> yeah. We have children. He has a pub. Um, I know. I know. I, I'm. I, I agree. I wow. Agree. Yeah. So. Okay. I That's spent, pretty cool. It was. Uh, I spent the afternoon with him because uh, in addition to getting to hang out with him, I I got to uh, pick up my copy of The Republic. Oh, nice. Yes. Um, Hell and yeah. I donated big time. So I got a hard cover, a soft cover, a whole bunch of wall art. Uh, a nice. bookmark. Um, I was stoked as could be. It was awesome. No it was autographed kidding. and That's everything. Amazing. But his pub Very is cool. so freaking cool, dude. Oh my god. Oh, I'm sure. It's a British pub made by an uh by a geek. Like oh yeah, well yeah okay. Heck, of Iron Man posters everywhere. Nice. And I don't just mean okay. posters. I mean like actual, the penciled art kind of stuff. It's it's cool. It's it's like badass. like comic comic book nerd comic book artist. Yes, and he's a huge okay. Iron Man fan. Uh, which okay, we're still friends despite that. But <laughs> I was I was gonna say that that's <laughs> kind of like yeah. wow you and you haven't cut him out of your life. No, uh, but kind of you know amazed, it's but, it's yeah it's 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 really cool though because like uh, a lot of the art that he has is like uh I, he and I were talking about it and we decided that the Rogues Gallery for Iron Man is actually superior to the Rogues Gallery for Spider Man. Um, most of them stuck around longer and most of them honestly was, and he pointed out, he's like, yeah, that's due to Justin hammer. Um, because Justin hammer would just like fund guys to update. So paste pot Pete became the trapster. Uh, the beetle stopped having those stupid suction fingers, you know, stuff like that. And I'm like, Oh, that is exactly it. Yeah. That's cool. Cause yeah, they evolved. Yeah. So they actually had, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, so the, the art up is just, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and, and it was a really fun time and I got some comic I can books, believe it. So yeah. Very cool. Uh, for nice. those of you that don't know, uh, Tim Watts is the comic book creator that we interviewed on episode 147 of our show. So go back and give that a listen when you're done with this. Very Speaking cool. of which. Yes, sir. You've been reading something for a long time. <laughs> a long time I've, I've been reading a lot of things for a long time yeah. um but um for for a long time i have had uh this episode percolating um and i i finally got off top dead center and and you know did the real world research involved in, in actually getting it put together so um i'm gonna ask you um, and this is going to be an interesting answer because <laughs> we've established that I'm, I'm the one of the two of us that reads fiction, mm -hmm. but if you had to choose a science fiction author who you think is the most influential mm -hmm. overall, okay. Not just on science fiction, but, but culturally on scientific thought, culturally, whatever, okay. who, who immediately, like what name comes to your mind? There's two names that jump to mind immediately. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go top to bottom though. So okay. yeah, I would absolutely say uh, Eric Blair. Um, you might know him as George Orwell. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I think good one. Actually. 1984. Uh, and and Animal Farm. Yeah. I think those are both sci-fi enough. And I think that they okay. his writing overall. Uh, 1984. 1984 definitely is Animal mm -hmm. Farm. I would I would classify as being. 
well allegorical and like either magical realism or just yeah. straight up fantasy but yeah okay, okay. fair right. yeah that works um but uh his writing overall yeah uh, for instance why i write or to kill an elephant or or, oh, or to kill an elephant is one of my favorites yeah i like, think so i think i think there's a good argument okay. for him being like number one but okay we're you know it, this is kind of like when when i'm brought up with the question of who is the best emperor in the world or the best emperor of rome i always liken it back to baseball are we talking longevity or are we talking peak performance peak performance okay. i don't think anybody could beat orwell because 1984 it's, yeah 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 okay um, yeah that's it, a stadium so orwell pressure, is the sandy kovacs yeah. yeah okay yeah yeah he's the he's the sandy kovacs the cy young would have to be isaac asimov because he has a book in every single dewey decimal classification like in one two three four five six seven eight and nine he's got books in all of them yes i think he might be the only one so he's the cy young he's he got that very longevity. Well might. yeah he very well might and and i've never read a bit of it yeah, I've seen yeah. movies Fucking that were either. based loosely uh, on stuff well, that he wrote. <laughs> so guess what? What? You're you're going to hear about one of the movies that that oh. is that that uses uh, mm -hmm. the title of Asimov's work. Um, the and, Sisterhood and of the Traveling Pants. It. Yes. 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 As a matter of fact, yes, that classic of the science fiction genre. Yeah. No, that, it's the it's the. Uh, <laughs> It's God it's the uh, one of the trilogy, right? Because there's How you, to Make an American Quilt, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and Sister Act Two. You never cease to amaze me that you're able to come up with this shit like just just so glibly yeah. like that. Yeah, and I hate you for it. I um, get that a lot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but right now I can't actually be mad. No, it's weird. <laughs> I want to be. <laughs> I so want to be sure, but no. So um, we're going to be talking about Isaac Asimov and we're going to be talking about robots specifically. And we're going to get into the perennial issue of why the movie of mm -hmm. just about anything frequently sucks compared mm. to the book. Okay. Like that's, that's the perennial, you know, the, the trope complaint is, well, you know, sure. the book was so much better. Right. Well, the, the trope come taint. Nice. Because it's perennial. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I, I got nothing in response to that <laughs> other than. So um, I'm as usual with these kinds of things, I'm going to start by talking about the author himself. Uh, Asimov was born in Hang Russia. On. Before okay. you go any further than that. Yeah. He joined the American Navy yeah. uh, and then became a writer. <laughs> Is this? Yeah. Okay. This this is kind of this is kind of a trend in the yeah. in in this in this period of, of science fiction because you know it, when you think about it the deal is um, men of this generation wound up serving a whole lot of them as a percentage of the population because of the war because of a whole lot of other stuff oh yeah um, and, and actually in his case it was pre war but but you know I was joking did he seriously join the American Navy he did fucking he did. <laughs> um. <laughs> I was oh, joking. On. Actually, hold I was on. going for the truth. I got I got to double check about uh. it. But um <laughs> actually no, I'm 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 conflating him with another science fiction author who did. That's oh, okay. My bad. So no. Well, cuz Asimov's name starts with an A, not an H, so it was a 50-50. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there you go. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh but he was God, born was funny. Okay. Yeah, but he was born in Russia in mm -hmm. late 1919 or early 1920. Okay. 
um, because of his family circumstances there and, and it being Russia in the, you know, 19 teens, uh, there, there was not really a birth certificate. So he, for most of his life, he celebrated his birthday on January 2nd. Uh, his family were millers. So they were kind of middle-class peasants. Uh, Asimov as a name is derived from the Russian word for winter wheat. Interesting little tidbit. Okay. Uh, the family emigrated to the U.S. when he was three. He was naturalized as a U.S. citizen at age eight, and he never actually spoke Russian because his parents always spoke to him in English mm. and Yiddish. Oh, okay. Um, now, I'm going to have to spend another whole episode to cover the length and breadth of his career because as as you say he has right. an entry in every category of the dewey decimal system um he is uh, very well known not only in in genre stuff he's not only well known as a science fiction author but also as a mystery writer mm -hmm. um and within the science fiction genre it's it's really not too much to say that without his influence, science fiction as we know it today would be very, very different. Okay. Okay. In 1942, he started the Foundation series that won him a one-time Hugo Award for Best Series. And Foundation went on to influence Dune, Star Wars, The Traveler, role-playing game, mm -hmm. Warhammer 40,000, and Star Trek. That's a lot. Now, the other series of his that originally was not conceived as being part of the same universe, but as so many authors do later in his career, he wrote connections between the two universes to turn it into <laughs> one big thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the robot series introduced yeah, one robot, two robot, three robot, four robot. Yeah. Right. No. Because, yeah, they made a movie out of one robot. See, this is where you being a Latin teacher causes a problem. It's it's I robot, the letter I oh, robot, not a, not a numeral, okay. not a numeral. I understand why you would get that confused. So you're commanding but the robot to go. You're saying go robot. This brought it's up, English, not yeah. Latin. Oh, very confused. Yeah. yeah. So different different set of rules there. Okay. Uh, but the robots series introduced the social implications of artificial intelligence it is it is the first series that really delves into the social implications of having uh so font non-humans sure having having man-made intelligent workers other science fiction authors have talked about robots before, but it was right. just kind of assumed that, well, you know, they're robots. They're not people. You Whereas know, he's and, saying, and no, just let's look at this. And and he actually said, okay, no, wait, let's let's look at the implications of actually having thinking machines doing our work. What are the ethics of that? How how is that going to affect society? Um, the robots series really is a very early example of social science fiction. Can I interrupt and, and yeah. tell me if, if you're going to cover this later and I will stop. Okay. Um, the Russian word for slave is the root for the word robot. Yes. Okay. Um, he's Russian. Uh, his parents spoke Yiddish and English around him, yeah. which tells me that they were literate people. Yeah. 
Um, did he get into the ethics of having mechanical slaves uh, he, through the culture of the kitchen table? He did not okay. expressly ever get there. Like, like he was not as socially conscious in his analysis as more recent writers have been. Um, like the idea that, that robots were, were going to be servants and mm. were not going to have citizenship rights was just kind of a given in his writing because, well, okay. they're machines, you know, and, and so there was still that, that um, I don't know if I'm going to say blind spot. I mean, blind spot's probably a word. Well, I mean, you know, it's, a it's phrase the, to use, you know, he's it's, growing it's, up at a time when industrialism is a given. And yeah. why would you think about smart tractors as being sentient? Like, yeah. I kind of get that. Like, yeah. you know, thinking of it's not like people thinking of teachers now where we're just fixtures. Yeah. We're um, just the furniture. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, it's that, that makes sense because yeah. again, you know, in 1900 was when we finally switched over to the 50 50 of farm and city people yes and you have a lot of the machines and stuff like that being sold in the city to the farmers so yeah he's growing up in the you know in, in, the, in a in realm the, where that the, happened yeah in yeah. in the in the relatively recent historically speaking relatively recent aftermath right. of that yeah right so that makes sense it would make sense i i wouldn't even call that a blind spot i, I would okay. just, you know maybe he's running the first lap for us and then okay. somebody yeah, else grabs sense. a baton and says but yeah. what if they were sentient yeah so okay so um he also introduces a set of ideas that have come down to us ever since and have kind of become they're codified in almost all of science fiction they're not always uh literally called out but they all they kind of show up over and over and this is the three laws of robotics okay yeah first law a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Second law, a robot must obey orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Right. Third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. This feels very close to that. Uh, second season episode where the guy wants to take apart data very oh yeah there it sits yeah Yeah. yes oh yeah hugely Mm -hmm. and this this conception of fully artificially intelligent beings Mm -hmm. because his the the human looking robots in his work are data i mean they they are essentially that's that's where uh, the, the idea of an android like data with a positronic brain, the, the right. phrase positronic brain is actually taken. Oh, really? From, yeah, from oh. Asimov. Wow. Um, and um, th- this has resonated through the genre ever since. R2D2 and C3PO owe their characteristics, at least in part, to Asimov's imagining of robots. Because I bet we could trace from Asimov to. Well, okay. You said he moved here would have been 22. So he would have yeah. been a young kid when Metropoli- or Metropolis was made. Yes. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So no, that sure. you've got a bit of feedback loop there then, yeah. too, because that yeah. must have worked its way into his consciousness. And then he I'm wrote sure. stuff and then we get C-3PO and R2-D2. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There isn't, there isn't anything um, in any of the literature that I found that like he, he never explicitly called out Metropolis. Right. But I'm sure 
you know, it was, it was, it was in the background. It, you know, it, yeah. it had, it had to have been somewhere in the back of his brain. Sure, sure. And so, it's robots mm-hmm. that we're here to talk about today. Okay. Specifically, iRobot, and how badly Hollywood fucked it up. Really? Because I liked it. Yeah. Of course, I never read Asimov. So I, I, I enjoyed it, but I mm-hmm. could look at it and go. This is a really good example of a heroic swing mm. that clips it. You don't get a home run. You get a really, really, really hard fly foul ball. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. And I'm, and I'm going to get into that. Yeah. So first Before of all, you do, did you get yeah. it? Did you ever see the, the robot chicken episode where they did iRobot Jetsons? Oh God, no. And they're George Jetsons dead. <laughs> It's either yeah. George that's dead or it's Spacely Sprocket who's dead. Okay. Yeah. And they're they're interrogating Rosie in oh, the same no. same lines. Oh, from yeah, the movie. oh yeah. 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 No murder. That's a new trick for one of you. I did not moita him. <laughs> so oh god. I'm, okay, I'm gonna have to find that because yeah. that's that's too good. <laughs> okay, so, so sorry. So uh Asimov's book I Robot is a collection of short stories. Uh, that center on the interplay between the three laws and their implications. Uh, the movie iRobot is clearly related most closely to the novel, The Caves of Steel, which is the first novel in the robots series. Okay. So it's pulling from all the source material to kind of amalgamate it into the one under the title iRobot though. Yeah. Well, okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the Caves of Steel appeared first in serial form in galaxy science fiction starting in October 1953. And it is an artifact of its time in a whole lot of ways. It is uh, supposed to uh, take place. Now I got to look at my notes here. Um, but it's, it's, in, it's in what is even for us the far future, several, several centuries farther forward in the future. Um, and, uh, there is no internet. There are no cellular communications, um, several times, uh, in the course of the book, uh, um, the, the investigator main character has to, you know, find a phone on the wall to, to make a phone call. Um, and, and there are computers showing up all over the place, but they are not interconnected with each other. There is no connectivity. Okay. The very concept of a worldwide, you know, gestalt yeah. computer network was sure. just, was so far removed from what anybody had conceived of computers doing that like, right. that's not there. Now, <laughs> my favorite bit of, bit of Z rust in this work though, is there's an awful lot that gets made of the staggering population of earth. Oh, that, boy. That, that the population of Earth is, is you know, humongous and teeming and people are living literally, you know, elbow <laughs> to elbow, cheek other. to yeah. jowl on top of each other in caves of steel, these right. gigantic megacities. Um, and, and the only way to manage the population is to build these metallic hives um, and have everybody live off nutritional yeast, like, oh. you know. Right. <laughs> And this, this population, this population, by the way, is 8 billion. What are we at now? Seven point something. (laughs) We're estimated to have hit 7.9 billion sometime around December of 2021. Oh, wow. 
we still haven't figured out how to build a real arcology to, to my terrible disappointment. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, that's basically what, what Asimov envisioned was he didn't call it that, but it's essentially an arcology. It's a gigantic vertically built, you know, uh, city, you know, I- integrated city. This makes sense that he would think that we'd get that high uh, in, in the ability to do that though. Yeah. Cause in the 1950s, we had people actually thinking that vaccines were a good idea. Well, yeah. And so people acting in their own best interests might actually do stuff (laughs) uh, that would help us all. So, Well, people people acting rationally in their long-term best interests. Even their short-term best interests. Yes, but (laughs) you know what I'm talking about, though. Yeah. yeah. He didn't have the, uh, I'm going to make the liberals cry by setting my my house on fire. Jesus Christ, yeah. I'm going to throw my Keurig out the window. That'll show you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it'll I mean, don't get me wrong. Me. The John Birch Society had started by then, but they were still somewhat. Oh, they were they were in full swing. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, they were they were relatively new, but yeah, no, they yeah. they knew what they they were already they were already yeah. going. So, uh, okay. so these yeah, giant so seven, giant seven cities point that... nine bit or eight billion people on right. the planet, like dude, Which, yeah, Isaac, buddy. I have, I have some. I got news. Disappointing for you. news for you. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so, uh, his robots run on positronic brains. And in the 1950s, just real quick, I think we're at two billion at that point, or have I, we gone up I to three? I believe we're. I think in 53 they were encroaching on three billion. Yeah. Yeah. You're right because two billion was around 1900. Mm-hmm. And then another 50 years, it was 3 billion. And then, yeah. because I remember when we hit six when I was in high school. So you mm-hmm. were probably do I. like, I don't know, uh, in grad school or something. Um, but, but I remember we hit six and now yeah. we're about to hit eight. Yeah. We're wow. just, just, okay. we may already have done it. Well, we you might know, have bounced back I mean, and we, forth. We a might few have, times yeah, too, yeah, we might have, yeah, this is idiots. true over the last couple of years. Yeah. yeah. So, um, okay. So positronic brains. brains. Yeah like which which roddenberry just like went i like that phrase data here you go um and they're incredibly powerful miniaturized computers but again with the z rust in the setting the use of computers in daily life is comparatively limited um the main character uh our our investigator is doing is doing paperwork in his office <laughs> you know they have sure. they have robots they have robots who are acting as secretaries doing paper filling work. out forms <laughs> it's so funny to find the limits of imagination with yeah this stuff. it really is it's hey, amazing real quick for our listeners um and for me yeah z rust explain oh okay sorry sure um it's a term taken like so many of mine are from tv tropes and it is the stuff that happens in science fiction when a work of science fiction gets 30 or 40 years old and you start to see that the vision of the future that we had 30 or 40 years ago mm-hmm. was so very 30 or 40 years ago. It's like going to Epcot Center now. Yeah, essentially. Existed. Yeah, Epcot yeah. Center Epcot Center is the, is the physical embodiment of Z-Rust. Here's what yes. people in the 70s thought that the 90s would be. These were going to look like. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I get you. <laughs> yeah. Um, like um, 
first historical futurism <laughs> the historical future yeah yeah that's great uh first example that pops into my head is think of um the movie logan's run okay and and the way they thought people were going to dress yeah in the far future right you know the, the idea that you know for some reason throughout the history of the genre the thought has been well we're going to get far enough in the future men are going to start wearing tunics again like huh you know I that mean, kind of thing they were know. close in the 60s late 60s they, early well, 70s they, they were mm -hmm. but that's part of the reason that so many science fiction settings are wearing them right is because like right. this is the cutting edge now <laughs> and you know take us 200 years in the future it's going to be Nehru like colors will be offset Yo, oh, yeah. a lot yeah, of triangles you know. yeah yo yeah yeah okay all, all i get you stuff. now so anyway that's z rust z rust thank you so now in this future mm -hmm. of of asimov's humanity has split broadly into two factions earthers which is exactly what it says on the tin people on earth and spacers uh, in his setting, humans have colonized roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 worlds. And spacer worlds rely very heavily on robot labor and have populations in the hundreds of millions, whereas Earth has the aforementioned 8 billion people living on it. This is already getting uncomfortable. And the standard of living is demonstrably lower on Earth uh, for the people living on Earth than that of the average reader of the book in the 1950s. Things are more crowded. Their living space is more constrained. Their diet is more limited. Okay. Most Earthers have a profound distrust rising to antipathy for, ro for human-like robots. Mm -hmm. Earth-built robots are much more limited in capability than those built by spacers. Uh, Earther robots are smart smart machines they don't okay. think they 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 are like imagine oh, i'm trying to think uh if your if your refrigerator was smart enough to sense and throw out food when it goes bad that's that's kind of the the brain power level of earther robots okay uh, they can do a few simple tasks, but they're not, they don't, they don't rise to the level of sounding or thinking like a human. Roombas and refrigerators, like specialized to yeah. the menial task. Yeah. Not yeah. conversational. Yeah. Okay. So uh, programmable, earthers, not trainable. Yeah. Okay. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Most earthers in his setting are also cripplingly agoraphobic because they live their entire lives inside the caves of steel. Uh -huh. So they, if they, if they have to go out into the open, many of them will be crippled by panic attacks. They can't handle being out in the open for significant periods of time sure. because they've been acclimatized to always having a roof over their heads. There is very significant tension between earth and the spacer worlds and very high level thinky people within space or society uh, at the start of the first novel have begun to believe that their culture is becoming stagnant. They want to encourage more space exploration. They, they want to try to find a way to get earthers to, to go out and, and explore more, more planets. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now the whole book is a murder mystery which is, which is fun because this is Asimov playing in both of his main genres at once. Right. 
um, a diplomat and scientist from the Spacer Worlds has been murdered. It's up to New York City Detective Elijah Bailey and highly advanced Spacer robot Daniel Olivaw to solve the crime. Um, so basically the Spacer embassy, for lack of a better word, insists you're going to have our guy working on this with you and our guy is going to be this android okay who outwardly is human anybody anybody looking at him is going to think he's a human he is however a robot who who by the way not only does he look human he looks exactly like his creator who is the guy who was murdered okay which turns out to be an important plot point Okay. Um, Plot-wise, the story is pr- pretty straightforward. Uh, in the end, the murder was committed by the police commissioner who thought he was shooting the robot. By the way, spoilers for a you know 70-year-old novel. <laughs> uh, the police commissioner actually thought he was shooting Daniel, the robot, uh, with a blaster. But in, in fact, he shot the human. This This was an attempt to try to sabotage the you know, see robots are just like us, you know, campaign by the spacers. Uh, As I said in my notes, the book's been out for 68 years. I'm not really spoiling anything. Uh, Prose wise, Asimov is remarkably spare. He, he does not paint very detailed pictures of much of anything. He doesn't spend an awful lot of time on adjectives. Uh, The concepts and ideas get a lot more development uh, through dialogue and character reaction, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the physical environment, he paints a very, very spare picture and then lets you kind of run with it. The themes of the book center on prejudice, colonialism, although oddly in reverse, because Earth is the weaker party in the relationship, mm-hmm. the ethics of artificial intelligence, and to an extent, the question of what makes someone human. Okay. So now this leads us to why why was the book the way it was? Now we're going to take now we got our history lesson. Here's here's your vegetables, boys and girls. Right. Uh Univac was developed starting in 1946 and it was funded in large part by the Census Bureau, which I had learned somewhere and forgotten and then relearned and hmm. and I find that remarkable that of all that of all in the 1940s late 40s after the war after the war of all the government organizations or government you know parts of the government that would have been funding computer technology you know i immediately would have thought it would have been department of defense or somebody like that but no it was the census bureau to help them with calculation of census statistics right i mean it makes sense now the upcoming 1950 census right you know um in 51 a univac mainframe computer predicted a landslide victory for Eisenhower despite Gallup polling showing he had a much smaller lead in the popular vote. Okay. Of course, you know, this is then in the 52 election, you know, he beats Adlai Stevenson the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the army requested a univac machine from Congress in 1951. So they, they looked at it and went, you know what? Actually, there's a lot of shit we could use this for. Yeah. Um, the transistor got mm-hmm. developed in 1947 at Bell Laboratories, kickstarting the process of miniaturization of computers as switches got smaller. 
Now, a character in Asimov's novel has lost his job at the police department. He worked at the front desk and he's been replaced by a robot. Referencing fears regarding the potential for automation to push people out of work. Now, I'm going to jump forward in time a little bit because this mm-hmm. immediately made me remember, hey, wait a minute, there's a Tracy Hepburn movie that that I remember from years ago back in a prior life uh, that was that was about a computer and and a group of people being worried about losing their jobs. The movie was Desk Set, Hepburn Tracy rom-com. It centers on the reference library of a major company mm-hmm. facing the introduction of a mainframe called Emirac. Okay. All the library staff are convinced they're getting fired. Uh, Tracy plays the computer's inventor. Hepburn is the head of the library staff. It's a really cute movie. It's based on a stage play built around the same ideas in 1955. Okay. So that's all floating. Those, those ideas are floating around in 52, 53 already because computers had, had entered the popular consciousness, Mm -hmm. you know, there in the early fifties. Is there also something going on here though, that, cause you know, you can serve two masters when you're writing something. Is there also something going on here about the robots being second-class citizens and the the earthers being the looked down upons, the colonialists being the the higher ends? It just feels like white fear of the braceros, that kind of thing. Or is this, I mean, it's obviously uh, automation, but is there anything in there, in, since it's a social science fiction, is there anything in there about like others well here's where it's a race kind of thing there isn't anything overt there isn't anything that you can look at and be like oh well you know okay clearly in this moment this is this is you know standing in for you know the you know for orwell being you know sent off to kill the elephant right right kind of situation but it was ongoing because my next set of notes is talking about collapse of empires. Oh, well, there you what's go. what what is what is interesting is there is a certain level of reflection, subconscious reflection on colonialism going on, because there is this huge amount of resentment by the Earther characters in the book of the spacers and robots wind up being a thing that earthers point their their scorn and their distrust and their xenophobia at okay so there there's a xenophobia that does get exercised on an other group yeah okay um but like you said it's not it's not explicit it's it's not yeah it's it's not he's not that's that's not a metaphor asimov asimov was not that kind of progressive there was not that like yeah he later later authors would would take that particular baton and be like okay i'm i'm a run so far with this but sure asimov wasn't wasn't there yet now of course in the wake of world war ii uh we've talked about this in a whole bunch of different episodes uh the major empires of europe disintegrated you know because they they essentially collapsed under their own weight in the wake of of the the damage that was wrought by the war uh, and and just this wave of decolonization happened 
Yeah, my favorite statistic is prior to 1945, no colonized people rose up against their colonizer and won. After 1945, no colonized people rose up against their colonizer and lost. And lost, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea of colonies overtaking and then potentially dominating their former, former overlords was subcon- was a subconscious phobia Sure. in the minds of anybody who'd been on top of the old order. So anybody in... Because they're on top you know, and a minority. Yeah. It's 100,000 right? Englishmen running, <laughs> a, running know, 800 million Indians. Yeah. So um, Asimov probably, like like I just said, he probably didn't intend any kind of anti-colonialist message. Mm-hmm. But there's an undercurrent of kind of reaping what one sows in the future history that he wrote. Yeah, okay. Um, and there's this weird focus on colonialist ennui and degeneracy. Um, in the next book in the series, uh, Bailey winds up traveling to a colony world on which the inhabitants have developed a culture of touch phobia because on earth, everybody is packed in cheek to jowl, you know, Mm -hmm. living in cramped living quarters and, you know, everything. Um, And, and, you know, uh, you, you can't get away from other people. Whereas on this colony world he travels to, there is so much space uh, that it's, it's a major plot point that, um, the murder victim uh, assumed he was speaking to a hologram and not his murderer. Oh, okay. And so on this colony, people have all of their children via artificial means. Mm. And, and Bailey actually has a moment where he, he calls them all out for, for their complacency They're, They, all their work is done by robots. They, they live like, you know, ancient Roman, uh, 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 what's what I'm looking for plantation owners. Sure. The, the latifundia. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't do any work. Uh, you know, all of, all of everything they do is all mental and airy fairy and they don't get their hands dirty. And, and he, mm-hmm. kinda, he, he, <laughs> he nearly gets murdered. And so when, when he shows up, he, you know, in his, this is why you all suck speech. He kind of goes right. off. Um, and so there's so there's this this interesting like weird idea of like uh, colonialists because I mean obviously the the colonialists here are literally colonialists and and there's this this idea of the overclass in a colony being decadent and complacent and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. which I don't think he consciously would have like he wasn't writing this as a Marxist polemic against you know colonialism. But there is this really weird cultural kind of critique going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then additionally, at the same time that's going on, there's a case to be made uh, for the idea that the post-war years were this time of dramatic increase in the pace of technological advancement. Yeah, things just, I mean, as soon as the transistors came in, like you said, miniaturization happened. And with that came an onslaught of everything this year's computers mainframe is half the room yeah you know not and the one after that and the one after that right you know a corner of the room right so so but but beyond just just electronics we're also talking about nuclear weapons quote unquote making war obsolete um satellite communications creating the possibility for instantaneous or near instantaneous communication across the globe right everything associated with the space race, which we've 
talked about before in previous episodes and the rapid introduction of automation um like you know the 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 um uh, kitchen what is it kitchen sink debates oh the the kitchen the debates. they're just called the kitchen, kitchen debates the yeah. kitchen debates yeah. Uh, the introduction, the introduction of all of the labor-saving devices that entered in the American household in right. starting in the 1950s, you know, automatic dishwashers, electric yeah. refrigerators, um, you know, blenders, blenders, yeah, you know? all all of these, you know, all, all of these doodads, these gadgets, right? Um, that that you know, uh, if we want to get back to the idea of you know making making human labor obsolete. Um, prior to the 1950s, most middle class households had a cook or a maid. Mm-hmm. After the 1950s, no, that's mom's job because mm-hmm. she has a vacuum cleaner. She has, right. uh, uh, you know, she can she she has a machine to wash the clothes and a machine to dry them now and yeah. a machine to dry them and and all of these labor saving devices. Number one, put a lot of people, a lot of people of color, out of work. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously trapped white middle class women in their homes. Right. <laughs> Which was a you deliberate know. thing because yeah. you had the boys coming back and needing jobs. Well, yes. And and in fairness, they deserve to come back to jobs. Like yes, they did. The the it's, problem is it not, doesn't have to be zero sum. Yeah. The, the trouble is everybody looked at it as a zero sum game and it yeah. really didn't need to be. Shouldn't have been. I'm actually gonna make the to make the judgment call there that it shouldn't have been a zero sum game. Yes, I uh, agree. but sexism. So there you go. Mm-hmm. And so Asimov winds up writing this novel that is this very prosaic kind of murder mystery. Uh, that once you get past a couple of very clever twists that he throws in, um, the explanation of the mystery winds up being pretty straightforward. Uh, it's still very much worth reading, though. Um, But it winds up being so much more than that because he winds up touching on all of these different chords Mm -hmm. in the popular subconscious. You know, there's there's all this stuff going on kind of all at once. And um, he was personally most excited about, you know, the the ideas of of, you know, the, the the actual idea of the caves of steel mm-hmm. was what he actually thought was like the really cool idea here was you know this concept of this you know massive hive city uh where people travel from one end of the city to the other on a gigantic essentially a uh, a moving walkway you know and escalators to get from different levels you know up and down and uh and and somebody reading the book uh <laughs> It's funny. Uh, uh, Asimov was um, w- was himself somewhat agoraphobic, uh, oh. or or actually, it might be fairer to say he was claustrophilic. Uh, okay. And uh, somebody somebody said to him, "You know, I was I I read I read the book and I was just shocked to my core. It sounds like a nightmare." And he says, "Really? It's, it Kobe. sounds sounds great to me. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. You know." <laughs> um and when he moves on from the first book to the later books he he gets into really looking at social psychology mm-hmm. 
as as you know the the he, he takes an idea out of what people were talking about in social psychology at the time and then builds on that um in the next book which is the one where you know husbands and wives live in separate houses miles apart from each other and conversation is not done face to face unless it's absolutely unavoidable mm-hmm. um psychological you know you know cultural psychological studies were just coming out at the time that we're talking about uh, social spacing and, and like the way that here in the United States, for example, if you and I were in person and we were standing to have a conversation, we would stand roughly far enough apart that like you would be able to reach out and stick your thumb in my ear. And that's like comfortable distance is is not quite arm's length distance uh whereas in a lot of countries in the world it's not uncommon to be half that distance apart from each other yeah right up on each other right up on each other yeah and then then in some other other cultures exactly you're farther apart uh you know specifically especially in some asian cultures you're farther apart i was gonna actually say you know the 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 place where i saw this or the places where I saw this kind of discussed were highlighted as Japan and England, mm-hmm. where your distance is, you know, I would say a sword's distance <laughs> plus but, a few inches. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, yeah. it would make sense that you would value and show people respect with that space mm-hmm. when you live on an island. Yes. And you can't get away from each other. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> if you're living, yeah. say, in a desert, where storms kick up and being near each other is a safety thing. Yep. Holding each other's forearms while you're talking nose to nose makes a lot of sense. Yes. You know. So. And so he he takes these social ideas and runs with them and and then, you know, extends them like science fiction authors do, you know, extends them to to some level of extreme and then, you know, picks them apart and examines them and that is what makes the book of uh, the caves of steel mm-hmm. really worth reading. Um, again, the mystery novel is meh. I mean, sure. it's, it's well put together. It's good, but it's not, uh, you know, it, it isn't shocking in any way. Right. It's not, it's not groundbreaking as a mystery. It's just a serviceable yeah. mystery. Yeah. But as, as a, as an, a, an examination of, what is society going to look like when we have 8 billion people living on the planet? <laughs> Sorry, I can't help but say it that way. Cause like, holy cow, Isaac. But, um, you know, when, when you talk about population density, it's an amazing study. Yeah. When you look at, you know, what's going to happen when we colonize other planets, what is, how is, how is society going to change? And of mm-hmm. course, consciously or subconsciously he's reflecting what he sees going on around him in what he's writing and so the relationship between the colony worlds and earth is a funhouse mirror reflection of what people thought might happen with formerly colonized countries right you know um and so that is his book so what do we call that when someone accidentally trips over a really salient thing to get to a thing that they really want to do. That's kind of mundane. 
That's a good question. You know, know. because like, I mean, what you just said was that he essentially tripped over brilliance to get to what he thought would be brilliant that turned out not to be all that. Yeah. You know, it just kind of turned out to be middling. Yeah. And I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure what we'd call that, but I mean, you've, you've a couple of times said fell backward into success. Yeah. But I mean, it's, you know, but it's, but it's not quite the same thing. Right. Cause he wasn't, he was, he was trying to be successful with yeah. with a mystery novel and yeah. like you said it was perfectly serviceable it wasn't a terrible mystery it just happened to be that the thing that mattered more was the, the setting <laughs> and what have you yeah despite the yeah. fact that he didn't really describe the setting much like that's that's the other thing he he describes the facts but well okay when when and if you ever read asimov what you learn is he's just not a details guy like in right he, he he's not he, he's not he's the like Tolkien is at one end of the spectrum mm-hmm. where, you know, he'll spend pages describing a fucking tree. Right. And then Asimov is on the other side, which is, it was a city. There were 8 billion people living in it. It was huge and cave-like and yeah. built of steel. And there you go. Like whatever right. you picture that looking like run with it, you know? Right. And yet at the same time, it's the setting that you're saying is so groundbreaking yeah despite his total minimalism in describing but but it's it's the thing is it's the concept he's he's a high concept science fiction writer oh we had another guy like that we've had starts with an h was it heinlein um heinlein somewhat but Mm -hmm. yes and no i mean it depends on which of his works you're talking about okay um so that's that is i'm gonna i'm gonna call this the first half of this one Sure, sure. Because that's that's the book. So I've I've established for you what what the book Caves of Steel mm-hmm. is about. And when we when we get together again, I'm going to talk about the movie I Robot with Will Smith. Oh, I thought we were going to do Blades of Glory uh, about the figure skater who was a no. I hmm. don't even know where you got that one from like caves of steel, steel blades, of blades. okay right three words yeah, yeah. <laughs> three words sounds like chainsaw yeah yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> i don't know no? okay okay <laughs> so um based on what we've talked about so far mm-hmm. what do you think what's your takeaway right now well um i'm curious did this fall under science fiction or did it fall under mystery in the dewey decimal system Science fiction. It's mostly categorized as science fiction. Okay. The the mystery is the plot MacGuffin, but right. it is tr- because it because it centers around robots and you sure. know anarchology. So and it sounds so like forth. Dewey or whoever classified it in the system, because by that point I think Dewey was gone. Um, because I think he died in the twenties or the forties. Yeah. But so whoever classified it in Dewey also saw what you saw, which is yeah, it's a mystery. But really it's but about mostly it's about yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Hmm. So I mean it's the fifties. We're getting into absurdism as a thing. We're getting into nuclear ni- annihilation. Yeah. It kind of makes sense that people are living in caves of steel, uh, given mm. that I grew up at a time when we watched the matrix and they were all living underground and in the 50s people were building bunkers oh yeah 
Um, yeah. So like all of that, you know, it all it all fits. It all tracks. Um, yeah. Ties together. In there, that way. there is a question of the ethical existence. So you've got a little bit of existentialism. Um, you don't have the anguish, abandonment, and despair, but you do have the three laws. Uh, yeah. yeah, I do and, find and, it interesting those laws, hmm. though, because um, you know the last one is like you got to protect yourself too. Unless, unless it protecting with the yourself others. prevents right. you from saving a human or following the orders of a human. Right. Right. So I just, so, yeah, it's, it's, and, and there's, there's, there has actually been an awful lot of uh, ink spilled of mm-hmm. uh, people commenting about the order in which the laws apply. Oh, you know, the first, the first law, first right. law can't allow a human to come to harm. Are can they harm a human or allow a human to come to harm? Stack? Yeah. And, and the intent is, the first law is is the most important one. Second law is right after that. Third law is right after that. Oh, okay. So yeah, I could see that being a, a place to argue as well. Because are they sequential? Are they prioritized? Do they stack? Like, yeah, it's kind of like when people look at the the Bill of Rights. Yeah, you know, you you learn real quick that it's not a priority list no, because. No. Okay, number one, you'd be like, yeah, that's pretty fucking high priority. And number two, you could absolutely argue that that's a really high priority because there is a school of thought of you can't have number one without number two. Um, there is there is a school of thought that follows that, yes. Despite all the evidence otherwise. Uh, but but then you get to number three and you're like, oh, this isn't a priority list. This anymore. is not really a priority. Yeah. This is this is, this is is your bitching about this. Yeah. <laughs> this is a pet peeve. But yeah, number three, really number three is primarily you. a pet peeve. This yeah. really mattered to you, but yeah. like, how often is this going to come up? <laughs> um, like, really, quartering of soldiers? Yeah. Um, I would say, I would actually say that from after number 10, 11 to 27 have been about priority because they're roughly every 20 years. Yeah. There are a few, a few spates yeah. where you had a bunch in, in a row. Yeah. Where you've got to solve the biggest problem of the time. Yes, constitutionally. So yeah, no, I would sense. say that you know that that's a temporal priority, but yeah, no, it makes but sense. the Asimov three rules. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see them as as a priority list. I see them much more as this builds off of the like number two can't exist without number one, so it's sequential yeah. to me. Yeah. So not having read any of it. Yeah. Well. So. Hmm. All right. Interesting that he's Russian too. There is there well, is a bleakness in Russian authors. Yeah. And he's not Russian culturally, but at the same time, his family, they're escaping pogroms. He 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 has that in his background. Yeah. You yeah. know, and and again, they're escaping pogroms. So you've yeah. got, you know, that kind of stuff going on too. Well, by the time they left, well, yeah, no pogroms, but just from yeah. a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Different from a different source of authority, but yeah. still. Good old yeah. Joe. And and actually they they would have they would have been running uh primarily because they were kulaks. Right. Uh more more than Jewish, it would have been because they were kulaks. Sure, and sure. We gotta we gotta get the fuck, yeah, get out, the of fuck here. out. Yeah. So cool. Well, uh, so what you reading? Uh right now I am reading Two Gun Witch by friend of the show, Bishop O'Connell. Mm-hmm. And um I have only had time to sit down and get a few pages into it. But it is amazing. Um, as a uh, 
I'm, I'm going to say historical fantasy, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a significantly, uh, the, the universe in which it takes place is significantly divergent from our own in a number of fundamental ways. Um, so I, I feel like, I feel like it needs a different moniker than historical fantasy. Cause it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not just, well, anyway, um, yeah. it is, it is a, it is, it is classified as historical fantasy. And, um, in just the first couple of pages, uh, it manages to be, it manages to hit multiple buttons of mine all at once. Um, and so it's, it's so far, it's amazing. And I have every confidence based on everything else he's written that it's just going to get better from there. Nice. Very nice. Highly recommended. Highly, highly recommended. Check it out. Um, how about you? Well, I am currently reading the Republic by friend of the show, Tim Watts. There you go. Uh, and the only place you can get it right now is at empire comics down on Fulton in Sacramento. So look up empire comics then walk in with your mask on, uh, pet the pugs, and ask them for Tim Watts's The Republic. It's a really good read. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it this time without the watermarks in the middle of it. Uh, but it's a, it's a really good read, and I, I highly recommend it. So that's what I'm going to tell everybody to go for. Uh, so Empire Comics in on Fulton Street in Sacramento. Ask for Very The cool. Republic by Tim Watts. Do they have a website that you might be able to order it from them on if you're not actually in Sacramento or uh, the Sacramento metro area? You mean Empire Comics, do they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A quick Google search. If you just typed in Empire Comics Sacramento, um, they have a Facebook page. I know they have a presence there. Um, and as far as their uh, website, um, if I recall correctly, it is, by the way, they also, it's just EmpireComics.com. Okay. Um, yeah, they Pretty also cool. sell hot sauce, by the way, which I always get a kick out of. All right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's what I recommend. So uh, for A Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, go forth and sin no more. <laughs>